Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. We will be continuing this evening our series through Romans with Romans 14 verses 13 through 23. Romans 14, beginning in verse 13. Hear now the reading of the word of God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself or what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Amen. Let us go once again to God in prayer and ask his blessing on this time. Let's pray. O Lord of heaven and earth, we pray now that you would descend on us who live here on earth by your spirit, that you would fill our hearts to look heavenward, where Christ is, where our life is hidden with him, that we may see Christ, that we may see his kingdom, and that we may be conformed more to his image. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. I think it's fair to say that as Americans, we love our freedoms. We love our freedoms. Our first ten amendments to our Constitution, it's all called the Bill of Rights. We have all our rights. We have freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of free speech, and on and on it goes. And we have all these freedoms we love to, to celebrate. Our national holiday every summer, July 4th, is Independence Day, a day of freedom from the British. We love our freedoms. But what is freedom? That's more than just a speculative philosophical question. It strikes at the very core of our day-to-day -day lives. If we're a people who love freedom so much and we love exercising those freedoms and living under those freedoms, what does it even mean to have freedom? What does it even mean to be free? The world's answer tends to be a rather negative one, a freedom from constraint, freedom from anybody outside of myself telling me what I can or can't do. We're seeing in our culture around us a 
perfect example of this to the extreme with the modern transgender movement, that nothing outside of my sheer willpower, even my own body, can tell me who I am or what I get to do with my life. At the end of the day, this worldly view of freedom is essentially one of autonomy. I am my own Lord, my own master. I get to decide what I get to do. Nothing outside of me constrains me. This absolutely flies in the face of a biblical view of freedom. From a biblical standpoint, freedom, true freedom, is something different. It's freedom from things like the world, the flesh, and the devil. Freedom from the yoke of this Old Testament ceremonial law. It's a freedom that actually does put limits on us. It's a freedom that lives within God-designed limits within which we can live and have joy and and carry out our lives as God intended for us to do. But sometimes that worldly view of freedom has a way of seeping its way into the church. And this is the exact kind of scenario that Paul is encountering here in the first century Roman church. What we have here, as we saw last week at the first half of chapter 14, was an instance of a dispute between two different parties in the Roman church that Paul refers to as the strong and the weak. And this dispute seems to be over matters about the the ceremonial law and what we can eat and what we can drink and special holidays on the Jewish calendar. And there were some whom Paul refers to as the strong who understood they had freedom from these things. But there were some, such as the weak, who hadn't quite come to that full maturity of knowledge yet. And so they're, they're the weak. Their consciences are, in a sense, weak. They still feel a bit under this yoke. They haven't quite understood their freedom yet. And yet, the strong appear to be flaunting their freedom. They, they appear, it seems to be, to cause their brothers and sisters who have that weak conscience, who don't understand their true freedom in Christ yet, they, they are causing them to stumble. They're flaunting their freedoms, exercising them willy-nilly without any kind of thought to their brothers in the faith. And what's happening is that they're causing their brothers in the faith to stumble. They are acting as a stumbling block, leading the others into sin to violate their own conscience. And what Paul says here is that these things must not be so. Yes, we have freedom in the Lord, but we must not use our freedom to cause others to stumble. Now, there's four different arguments that the apostle gives to exhort his readers, to really exhort the strong, which is whom he's addressing in this passage, to not cause their brothers in the faith to stumble. Four different arguments, and we'll consider each of these in order, in the order of emphasis that the apostle gives them. Now, the first argument to understand here is that when we cause brothers and sisters in the faith to stumble, we are violating the law of love. That's our first point tonight. Look again at verse 15. The apostle writes, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. You violated the law of love. Now, when he says here that 
these people are causing their brothers in the faith to be grieved. This isn't necessarily that sort of uh, emotional reaction that you get to maybe seeing something that you find detestable or that you think is wrong. No, the apostle is talking about the grief of a conscience that is tinged, the grief that comes from the conscience of one who knows that they've accepted something that they believe to be wrong or even maybe even dabbled into something that they think in their conscience is wrong. It's the, it's the grief that the Holy Spirit brings when he convicts us of sin, of violating what we believe to be true, what we believe Scripture to teach. Paul says, you have caused this grief. And what does causing this kind of grief do? It means that you're not living under love. Now remember the context here. In chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, the apostle has exhorted the Romans to let love be genuine, to love one another with brotherly affection. And then later on in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, he sums up the whole law and reminds them what that summary of the whole law is. It is to love one another. It is to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is, in essence, the law of God, to love neighbor as ourself. Not only that, but over and over again, the apostle reminds the Romans in this passage that these aren't just any old people that we're talking about. When Paul talks about the strong and the weak, he's not talking about believers and unbelievers. He is talking about two kinds of people within the church of God. Two kinds of people who are believers. And Paul reminds them. He reminds the strong, these are your brothers. These are your family. These are your siblings. Verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. These are your siblings. These aren't strangers. These are God's people. These are blood-bought children of the king. These are people who deserve your love, to whom you owe love, the people that you ought to have the dearest, closest affection for, brothers in the faith. And Paul says, love them. You need to love them like you love your own flesh and blood family. Love them in the way that God calls you to love them. When you have a dispute with someone in the church, someone who's a part of the family of God, is love for that person your main motivation? Is love for your brother and sister the thing that is driving Every time you have that controversy, that dispute with someone else in the church, are you more concerned about being right? Now, Paul admits in this debate, there is someone who is right. He calls the strong, strong for a reason. They're right. There's a dispute going on about the ceremonial law, and Paul says, you know, I'll I'll even briefly jump into this dispute, and I'll tell you, someone's right in this controversy. Verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. 
So he's saying you're having this dispute about food and drink. I'll tell you, there is a side, there's a right side to this, but it's not as much about that as it is about loving your brother or sister in the church. Yes, you can be right about something, but you can also be sinfully right about something. This isn't saying that truth doesn't matter in disputes. This isn't saying that we can just pretend that someone's right when they're actually wrong about a matter. Paul's not saying that at all. Again, he's emphasizing there is a right answer in this case, but that right answer must be communicated, must be held in love. First and foremost, love for the family of God. So that's Paul's first point. Causing others to stumble violates the law of love. But secondly, Paul not only argues that you must not cause your brother or sister to stumble because it violates the law of love, but it also brings unnecessary shame on the kingdom of God. Look again here at verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So notice the way that Paul's arguing here. First of all, he gives us a negative. He tells us the kinds of things that the kingdom of God is not about. He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Now, this isn't to say that the Bible and God's salvation and the redemptive work that God is doing in this world through the church has nothing to do with your eating and your drinking. That's not what Paul is saying here. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So there is a sense in which every little aspect of our life, even down to our food and drink, is touched by the kingdom of God and the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. So Paul's not saying that there are certain areas of your lives that are untouched by the kingdom of God. But what he is saying is that the coming of God's kingdom that he is bringing onto this earth through the gospel, through the church, is not bound up, is not primarily concerned with these outward matters like food and drink. Rather, it's concerned about the inward matters, spiritual realities like righteousness, peace, joy, things that are wrought by the Holy Spirit of God, things that can only come from God's Spirit in a redeemed people. Anybody can eat food and drink and argue about those things, but the kingdom of God does something that the world can't do, and that's bring about supernatural righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. These are the things that the kingdom of God is primarily concerned with. Now notice what Paul says here in verse 16 related to the kingdom. He talks about something that is good. He says, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Now in context, again, he's talking to the strong here. He's talking to the people who understand their Christian liberties. And he says, you have something you regard as good. You have a good thing. 
addressed to the strong. This is their Christian liberty, their freedom from the ceremonial law, their freedom to eat what they want, to drink what they want, to not have to observe the Jewish uh, calendar and festivals and feast days and those kinds of things. And Paul says, this is a good thing. You have a very good thing here. You have Christian liberty in Christ. But, he says, don't let this good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of these kinds of things. So notice there that close connection Paul makes here between what you regard as good and the kingdom of God. He says that there is a particular kingdom, the kingdom of God. And when you act a certain way, you are bringing a bad name upon that kingdom. When you let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, you are bringing shame on Christian liberty. What you regard as good spoken of as evil. In other words, there's this scenario that Paul understands is playing out in the Roman church where there is a Christian liberty that's being exercised by those who understand what they have in Christ. And yet, that good thing is derided, is dishonored, is spoken evil of because it's being abused, because it's being used without love. And when our good things that come from being members of the kingdom of God, like our Christian liberty, when they are abused, we not only bring dishonor, shame upon ourselves, upon our Christian liberty, but upon the very kingdom of God that gave us that liberty, that gave us that freedom in Christ. Paul says, do not bring dishonor upon the kingdom of God for things that it isn't even concerned about, things that are peripheral to the matters of the kingdom. We've all heard the stories about the church that splits over things like the color of the carpet. And we usually talk about how ridiculous that is and then pray that it never happens and hopefully search our hearts and see if there's anything in there of a similar nature that we need to repent of. But there's a reason that we talk about those kinds of church splits as if they're so ridiculous. And why would anybody do that? Because we know the color of the carpet has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with these matters of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God isn't concerned about the color of the carpet. It's concerned about saving lost souls and conforming them to the image of God. Brothers and sisters, are your priorities the priorities of the kingdom? Or are you willing to die on every single possible hill that comes across your view? Are you concerned more about inward spiritual matters, matters of righteousness, matters of peace, matters of joy in the Holy Spirit. There are some matters that, yes, the kingdom of God changes, that it affects, but those things may be on the periphery, like food, like drink. When there are core matters at hand, things that are truly worth dying for, things that are truly worth disputing, It's interesting here that the Apostle Paul almost treats food and drink as if it's just a peripheral matter and doesn't even have any bearing on the kingdom. And yet, we almost see Paul acting in other places the complete opposite. 
So if you read Galatians 2, for instance, we see that Paul looks at Peter, who he's interacting with, and and Peter's in this particular church, and when some Gentiles come, or excuse me, not Gentiles, when some Jews come, and they see, Peter sees these Jews coming, uh, who he knows still don't understand the true uh, nature of the kingdom and the freedom we have in Christ, he withdraws from the Gentiles, and he stops eating and drinking with them. Now hold on, Paul, I thought you said food and drink doesn't matter. I thought you said this is a peripheral issue. There's a difference between things like the root of a problem and, say, the fruit of the problem. One is a bigger priority than the other. In this particular instance, Paul understands that the matter of eating and drinking isn't really the root problem at hand. The gospel itself is not at stake. Paul understands that these weak brothers and sisters in the faith, they know the gospel. They know the truths of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Whereas in the instance of, say, Peter withdrawing from the Gentiles and refusing to eat with them, he knew that Peter's conduct was coming from a place that denied the very nature of the gospel inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. So when you think about, for instance, your disputes with brothers and sisters in the faith, are you making your priorities the priorities of the Bible? Are you more concerned about, say, the fruit of a problem as opposed to the root of a problem? Are you more concerned about outward things than inward things? Earthly, this life kind of matters instead of spiritual matters. Do not cause your brother or sister to stumble and bring unnecessary shame on the kingdom. Now that's the second argument Paul gives here. The third argument he gives here is in verses 19 and 20. The apostle has argued that we are not to violate the law of love. We're not to bring unnecessary dishonor on the kingdom of God. And then, verse 19, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Paul's third argument here is essentially this. God is doing a work and building up your brothers and sisters in the faith. So do not work against what God is doing in their lives. Do not tear down what God is building up. Now the specific word that's translated upbuilding here in verse 19, in the Greek it generally refers to the idea of an erection of a building. So a building going up, building a new structure. And Paul uses this kind of imagery all throughout his letters. This idea that Paul is building his people into a building, as it were. That the work that he does in sanctifying us and making us look more like Christ and conforming us into his perfect holy image, it's like building a building and the structure is going up and it's a progressive work and it takes time and it goes on and on and on and it won't be finished until the life to come. But the thing about this building is that God doesn't just pay, say, a reasonable price for it. He doesn't even pay a very handsome mortgage for it. No, he gives the ultimate price he possibly could for this building. He pays to build this building with the life of his own precious son, Jesus Christ. Verse 15 Paul says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. 
God is doing a work in the lives of those around you. And he has paid for that work at the most precious possible cost. The cost of his eternally begotten son. Paul pictures it as if God is going through this house. And you can almost see the image of a a worker going through a house that's that got the foundation laid, and maybe the studs are up, and the frame is out, and they're going through, and they're putting up things, and they're putting drywall here, and they're getting everything ready, and now they're going to plaster over, and they're going to paint. And Paul says, don't come up right behind this worker, and as they put up the drywall, you just tear it right back down. Don't go behind God as he's working in the lives of those around you and just ruin everything that God is working in their life to slowly but surely build into full perfection into the full image of the glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, when you abuse your Christian liberty and cause your brother or sister to stumble in the faith, you are tearing down what God has built up. In fact, Paul almost argues from absurdity here. He's trying to show us how absurd a thing that is to do. When you cause a brother or sister to violate their conscience and to stumble and you abuse your Christian liberty for things like food and drink, you're putting things like food and drink on the same level as the kingdom of God and the work of God. Again, verse 15 Note this sharp contrast he makes between food and the Son of God. He says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Why on earth would you destroy one for whom Christ died for something as paltry as food? Why would you, a mere human being, try to resist the work that God has determined to do in the lives of his people and slowly but surely applying the work of Christ in their lives at the cost of the death of his own son. By what you eat, by the exercise of your Christian liberty, do not tear down what God is laboring to build up. Brothers and sisters in the faith, be patient with the work of God and do not tear it down. Quite often it's very easy to look at those around us who haven't come to the fuller knowledge of the truth, even on uh, these kinds of matters. And again, Paul's not talking here about core matters of the faith. He's not talking about the nature of the gospel, the nature of God and the Trinity, or things like the incarnation. No, he's talking about more peripheral matters to the faith. And oftentimes it's easy to look at those around us who haven't come quite to this fuller understanding of things like food and drink And maybe you have come to a fuller understanding. Maybe you do better understand the liberties that God has given you in Christ. What you may or may not do. What you may or may not eat or drink. Or places you may or may not shop and and go. and, And activities you may be involved in. And we may look at those around us who haven't come to that, and we, you almost want to just shake them. You all just, almost just want to say, don't you understand? Can't you read your Bible? It's so obvious. It's right here. But Paul says, be patient. Remember, God is doing not just an instantaneous act in the lives of those around you, 
or in your own life. He's doing a work, a progressive work. Yes, he's saved this person with the single act of justification, but the work of sanctification is just that. It's a work. It takes time. It's a slow process. Pastor Ben mentioned last week, especially the need to consider certain ideas, ways of life, habits that get deeply ingrained in us. You can't expect a Jew who's lived their entire life by these ritual laws and all of these kinds of legal codes that have to do with eating and drinking and calendars and then overnight just to completely flop and change and say, oh, no, you're right, all right, this new thing has happened, now I'm on board. People don't work that way. Christians don't work that way. Nobody today works that way. You need to have patience with the work that God is doing in the lives of those around you. A loving, kind patience that loves the kingdom of God and the work that God is doing in that kingdom. Which brings us to our our fourth and final point this evening. We've seen that the apostle argues against causing others to stumble. One, because it violates the law of love. Two, because it brings an unnecessary shame upon the kingdom of God. Three, because it tears down what God builds up. And fourth and finally, because violating the conscience is a very serious sin. We far too easily treat our consciences lightly. It's so easy to feel like you're stuck between maybe a rock and a hard place. You know what you ought to do, but... Following God, just it's uncomfortable, it's, it's uneasy, I don't like it, it'll be a little more difficult, and it's not a big deal, this isn't that big of a deal, so I'll just ignore that, I'll push my conscience aside, I'll numb it, I'll put it away, and I'll just go over here and do this other thing instead. Brothers and sisters, violation of the conscience is a very serious sin. We see that in a number of ways all throughout this passage. It's peppered all throughout verses 13 through 23. The Apostle Paul, first of all, just notes the consequences of the violation of our conscience. He says, verse 15, that our brothers get grieved when you eat. Grieve. Not just slightly annoyed, not just a little sad. He said, the violation of the conscience is something that causes grief. That causes deep inner pain. Psalm 32, which was written by David, and we don't know this for sure, but many people believe, and it's, there's good reason to believe, that David writes Psalm 32 reflecting on his state of mind and his life in between his sin with Bathsheba and his being called out by the prophet Nathan and repenting and, and writing Psalm 51. But David in that psalm, in verse 3 In reflecting on unrepentant sin, he says, my bones wasted away because of the agony of a violated conscience. You know what that agony is like. You can't get anything in your head and it nags at you and it pushes all other thoughts out and it sucks the joy out of your life. Paul says in verse 23, the one who doubts the violation of their conscience, they're condemned. There's a self-condemnation, yes, but there's also this understanding that I stand condemned before God, that he sees what I have done and he knows that I ought not 
to have done this thing. Besides just the consequences, note the strong language that Paul uses here. This person isn't just a little sad. This person, by their violation of conscience that you have led them into by your abuse of Christian liberty, this person is grieved. They're grieved. When you do this kind of thing, you don't just get in their way. You don't just injure them a little bit. Verses 15 and 20 say, you destroy them. This person has been destroyed. The work of God is destroyed. Perhaps most seriously of all, Paul says that when you cause a brother or sister to sin in this way, you are a stumbling block to them. You have caused them to stumble. Verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And the Apostle Paul is not lightly using the language of stumbling block. This isn't just a casual thing that Paul talks about from time to time. He uses the stumbling block language for very serious sins. In chapters 9 and 10, when he brings up the phrase stumbling block, it comes up a couple of times, and he uses it to talk about the hardening of the Jews towards Christ and towards the gospel of God. Now, Paul's not saying here that you can make someone lose their salvation. He's very clear about that in chapter 8. But what he is saying is that you are doing something very, very serious. The kind of thing that can lead people into a destruction that can cause them to stumble, that can be ruinous for them spiritually. Paul says this is a grave sin. Christian, do not cause your brother or sister to do something as awful as stumble over a stumbling block. So what do we do instead? For not to cause our brothers or sisters to, to sin by stumbling over their conscience, what do we do instead? Verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, use your Christian liberty to build others up. One of the best ways you can do that is actually in this text itself. Verse 22, Paul says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. If you know your brother and sister has an issue with something, you don't have to flaunt your liberty in front of them. You can keep it between yourself and God. Christian liberty, it's not just a liberty to do some things. It's also a liberty not to do them. Your Christian liberty is something that you can pick up or you can put it down. You can use your Christian liberty between you and God. You can use it in the privacy of your own home or in your own personal life. You don't have to bring it out for every single person to see. And when you know that your Christian liberty is causing a brother or sister to stumble, you also have the liberty to put it aside, to not feel the need to use it, to not feel the need to prove to the world that you have liberty in Christ. Why? Because you love your brothers and sisters in the faith. Because you love the kingdom of God that has brought you this liberty and you would never want to do something like cause them to stumble. It's a Christian liberty that is used to build up. So what is true freedom? To return to our opening question. True freedom, it's not a freedom from all outside constraints. 
It's not a freedom from others. No, true freedom is a freedom that out of love for others uses, even sacrifices our freedom for their own sake. It's a freedom for others, not a freedom from others. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for texts like Romans 14. Texts that don't leave us in the dark, but show us how you would have us interact with our brothers and sisters in the faith. And Lord, it is our prayer that by your spirit, you would give us sacrificial love for those around us seeking to build each other up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.